Well, good morning. In case you're wondering, my name is Todd Sapisa. I'm the teaching pastor here at Melanie Park Church. Been gone for a few weeks. Uh, speak to that in the back of the bulletin if you're interested, but it is good to be back. Even though, if I'm honest, it feels a little awkward kind of getting back into a routine. Uh, I will say I was excited when I showed up on Monday and pushed in my security code that the door opened, so that was, that was a good start. But I'm sure we've all had those experiences in life where we felt a little awkward. We kind of felt like we might be out of place. We've wondered, am I supposed to be here? I don't know, probably a lot of you have traveled uh, over the summer, as my family and I have, and uh, on occasion... If you take the back roads like we do, you stop in some small little town and you go to their local cafe and you sit down and begin to eat your meal before you realize that all the locals who are there drinking coffee are staring at you like, what are you doing here? You know? It's kind of that awkward moment like, I don't think we belong here. But we've all had those experiences. Uh, you may have that experience when you visit a new church. Some of you may feel that way this morning. Just feeling awkward. Do, do I have a place? Is this somewhere where I belong? I, I don't know if Melanie Park Church is the place where you belong. I hope it is. I, I really do. But I do hope that even still, no matter why you're here this morning, that is the place that you can be loved. I, I don't know if it's where you belong, but I do believe that in this moment that you're here, that it is a place that you can be loved. And if it is a place that you might consider your church home, I promise we're going to work real hard to help you find a place to fit in. Because we believe that God puts his people as he desires, gifts them uniquely with the Spirit for the common good of everyone. And so we want you to find a place where you can exercise those God-given gifts to the praise and glory of his name. And if you're here this morning for the first time, it's great timing because we start a new series this morning in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel, as most of you know, is an Old Testament prophet who lived over 2,000 years ago, which is a long time, right? But I hope that what you'll find as we walk through this together is that much of what Daniel has to say applies directly to our lives right here and now. As a reminder, Daniel was one of the exiles that was taken into captivity when the Babylonian Empire was taking over the then-known world. Historical fact, it's in all the books that you can read on history, and they were just taking over and conquering every city that they encountered, including the city of Jerusalem. Now, those that they didn't kill in battle... They had a, a method of taking them into captivity and then kind of transplanting them back in the capital city of Babylon. So if you stop and think about that a minute, uh, you can understand why Daniel and his friends would have felt very awkward, very out of place. They were over 1,500 miles from home. Daniel and his young friends were all separated from their families and anything that was familiar to them back home. They were strangers in a foreign land. And they were surrounded by influences specifically designed to conform them 
into the mold of the Babylonian culture. And to be honest, if we stop and think about it, the same is true for us. Like Daniel, we are strangers. We are aliens, the Bible tells us, in a world that is not our home. We are surrounded by influences that seek to shape us into the mold of our social norms. And many of these norms that we see happening in our world around us are in direct opposition to our Christian faith. And Tony Evans recently told his congregation, he says, I just need you to know that we're no longer the home team, that we're visiting, and the crowd is not here to support us. I would go so far as to say that we are enemies on someone else's turf. This is not our home. And like Daniel, we, we're exiles. As a Christian, many of our long-held convictions are seen as offensive in our culture today. Your definition of marriage, your definition of gender, your definition of morality, your definition of the sanctity of life, these are biblical norms that are foreign concepts in our world today. And I don't know about you, but I feel this. I feel the pressure to compromise, if for no other reason than to simply avoid conflict. Because when you stand on those values, you will encounter opposition in our world today. And yet, and yet, we know that God has called us, each and every one of us, as followers of Christ to, to flourish, to flourish in this foreign land. And I believe as we look at Daniel, we'll see an example of what that's supposed to be. But in the end, I also need to remind you that this really isn't a story about Daniel's life. Okay, don't miss this. It's not a story about Daniel's life. It's a story about God. He's the main character. And it's about his work in the life of Daniel. This is a reminder that no matter how bad things may get around us, our God will never leave us. Because our God is sovereignly in control and actively present in our lives. Yes, God did some amazing things in Daniel's life. But guess what? He's not done yet. And that same God who is at work in the world of Daniel is at work in our world today. And more importantly than that, he's at work in your life today as well. Living and active. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when we look at God's word together, let's keep that truth in mind. Let's pray together. Father, as we begin to open up your word, we want to ask that you open up our hearts and our minds and our lives to be able to see and understand the truth of your word, to see how it might in some ways contradict with the so-called truths in our world. And Lord, as we're confronted with those conflicts, may we grab firmly to that truth that we see in your word, because we know that is the only absolute truth that exists, your word, to your people, for your praise and glory. May we cling 
tightly to those truths and anchor our lives accordingly. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as we get started, in order to fully understand uh, the prophet Daniel, we really need to be able to understand the prophet Jeremiah. Because the exiles in Babylon are experiencing everything that the prophet Jeremiah said would happen. I mean, all that they are going through is just as, they, as he said it would. But they're experiencing things, and we need to understand this, they're experiencing things now that could have been avoided. For over 25 years, it's a long ministry, right? For over 25 years, Jeremiah has been calling the people of God back to a place of worship to God. He confronted their false worship. He confronted their compromising morality. He confronted their rebellious hearts. And the reason is, is because the Israelites had adopted many of the pagan rituals, the social norms of the world that surrounded them. They compromised and therefore were conformed, were molded into those social norms. And for 25 years, Jeremiah pleaded with his people to return to God. But that's why he's called the weeping prophet, because nobody listened. And I just wonder how many times we've heard that same sermon, a call to return to God with with faithfulness and trust in him. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we listening? God showered his people with grace, but they invited his judgment. And in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 1, the prophet Uh, begins to explain the consequences of their ongoing rebellion. I want to read that to you. It's in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 1. Listen to what this says. So after 25 years, as we will see, or almost 25 years, this is what happens. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people and Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, and this is what he said, From the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again and again, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again and again. But you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land in which the Lord has given you and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after other gods and serve them and to worship them and do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands and I will do you no harm, yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord. In order that you might provoke me to to anger with the work of your hands and with your own harm, to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, 
and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all those nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, and the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. The whole land will be a desolation and a horror. And the nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, there's some really interesting things in this prophecy, beginning with the reality of God's patience. For 25 years, really a lot more than that, because in addition to Jeremiah, he had sent Isaiah, Hosea, Elijah, Elijah, Jonah, Joel, Amos, for over 200 years, all these prophets of God were were speaking to the people of God and calling them to a place of repentance, but they repeatedly, as it says in the scripture, again and again and again, chose to go their own way. But right alongside of the patience of God, we see the sovereignty of God. Did you notice how the evil king Nebuchadnezzar is identified in this passage? His servant. In verse 9, we see that. He's called the servant of God to bring judgment upon the people of God. So as we look at history and the landscape of things that have happened all throughout time, we see a snapshot in this event that God is the one who is orchestrating all those events towards a redemptive end. Nebuchadnezzar is just a pawn in God's plan of redemption. Because this judgment, as we see in this passage, has a limited lifespan. Jeremiah says that it will last how long? 70 years. And that's really important, so hang on to that fact because it'll show up later in our study. What this tells us is that God's judgment is not just a punishment. There's a purpose. There's a purpose. In fact, I would go so far as to say there is a redemptive purpose even within God's righteous retribution. The Bible says that God is full of justice and mercy. There is redemption even in the midst of his righteous retribution. Jeremiah reveals that truth to us in chapter 29, verse 10. Listen to what he says here. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years, remember that was the promise, have been completed for Babylon, that's the limited lifespan, I will visit you, God says, and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. That's good news. It's telling us that God has a covenant relationship with his people, a unilateral covenant promise, despite how they may behave. We see the rebellion 
And, and, and yet, even in their rebellion and their choosing to reject God, do you see that God chooses not to reject them? Because he made a promise, and a promise that he is always and forever faithful to. In the end, and don't miss this, okay? His judgment is a means to their rescue. Did you hear that? It's important for you to understand that, that God's judgment is a means to their rescue. Now, that's important because it should remind you of another event in Scripture. What about the judgment that we see at the cross? Where God places the punishment that we deserve for our sins on Jesus Christ, our Savior. That judgment was a means to our rescue. Do you see that? That's the way God works. He's not harsh and vindictive. The Bible tells us and it shows us over and over again that he is full of mercy and grace. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. His plan then, as it is now, is for your welfare, not for calamity. He wants to give you a, a future and a hope, but just like then, it depends on you trusting in him and turning from the ways of the world. That promise still stands. If you seek him, you will find him. If you seek him with all your heart. His judgment is a means to our rescue, back then as it is even now. So as we go through our study, let's always keep that truth in mind. And if you will, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 1, and let's look at our passage together. I invite you to read along with me if you would like, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jericho, or Jero, Jehoiakim, sorry, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the king of the officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court, and he ordered them to teach them in the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now, among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. And to Hananiah, Shadrach. And to Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Everything happened. Just as Jeremiah said it would. Beginning in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, that servant of God who was allowed to carry out a judgment to his people, came and put a siege in Jerusalem. 
A siege that lasted until 586 when the city was destroyed. But in that interim, he took captives and made them exiles, transplanting them back in Babylon. And they were allowed to live there as exiles as long as they adopted the traditions and patterns of the culture in which they now lived. So what the king was doing here was very strategic. He was expanding his kingdom, his empire, by what I call Babylonizing his citizens. He was expanding his empire by Babylonizing the captives that were now in exile, taking foreign people and turning them into loyal citizens, which involved all aspects of their life, including their worship. We read in verse 2 that Nebuchadnezzar took the articles from the temple in Jerusalem. So those articles that were used for Jewish worship. And it says that he took them and put them as worship to the Babylonian gods. And really what he was doing here was sending a very clear, explicit message. And the message is this. Our gods are bigger than your God. That's what that was intended to communicate. So in order to live in Babylon, your worship had to change. In addition to your worship, they sought to extend their influence from inside the people of God. Again, another brilliant move, in my opinion. They took some of the most promising young men and trained them to become future Babylonian leaders, leaders that were trained to carry out the political agenda of Babylon. Daniel and his friends, as we learn here, were among those young men. The verse 4 says they were youths, okay? That word typically describes somebody who's a teenager, maybe 15 at least, uh, but no more than 20 years old. So let me just ask this. If you're in that age range, right, 15 to 20, raise your hand for me, 21, somewhere in that range. Okay, I want you guys to listen very very closely. Like Daniel, you are in exile too. You just have to accept the fact that you are living in a world that is not ultimately your home if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Your home is a place that's being prepared for you that's a lot better than here. So praise the Lord, this is not your home, okay? So so you need to know that like Daniel, you are are in exile. And like Daniel, you live in a world that is trying to shape the way you think and the way you act. It's in your music. It's in your classroom. It's in the things that you read and the things that you watch. It's in your entertainment. All these things are intended to shape you into the mold of our social norms. So please, listen to me here. Don't be naive. Recognize what is happening around you and pay very close attention to the example of Daniel and let him demonstrate how a young man lives faithfully in a world that is not his home. Because in the end, you're the ones who are going to shape the next generation. Verse 4 tells us that Daniel and his friends were trained in the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans, that's still the Babylonians, but it is the upper echelon. These are the wisest of the wise men. This is where all the royalty comes from. So they are being groomed to be future 
leaders. They're being treated like royalty. Which is why verse 5 tells us that they were fed the king's choice food. They were promised the privilege of, of entering into the king's personal service. But listen, all this is a ploy, okay? It's a ploy to indoctrinate them into the Babylonian culture. It was very clearly a campaign of coercion. Did you hear that? That's what this is. It's a campaign of coercion, treating them like royalty in order to use them like slaves. That's what's going on here. Feeding them information, again, through their education, influencing them through their media, shaping their lives through their entertainment. And once again, it is no different today. Our lives are flooded with influences that intend to shape the way we think and determine how we act. It's in our schools, it's in our media, it's in our entertainment. All these messages have a hidden agenda they seek to influence your opinion and the choices that you ultimately make in life. The same was true for Daniel and his friends. Sometimes it was subtle, sometimes more overt, like when they changed their Jewish names into Babylonian names. Because our name is our identity, right? When I say your name, Lindsay, you know who I'm talking about. That's, that's who you are. That's our identity. And so by changing their names, they are redefining their identity. That's the hidden agenda. It's a really brilliant strategy. It's used through many cultures and many generations, including our own. A campaign of coercion used to manipulate our opinions and influence our choices. A strategy so powerful. Now listen to this. This is how powerful it is. And we see this today. It is so powerful. It can take what has historically been wrong and convince you that it's right. Or what is considered right in our past is now considered wrong. Do you see any of that happen today? That's the power of coercion. And it's the hidden agenda of the enemy at work in our world today. Which, by the way, was the same enemy at work in Babylon as well. Okay? The strategy hasn't changed. Look at how it continues in verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the Lord, the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are of your own age, then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. Then deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their 
choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. So the Babylonians were right about one thing. They were right about the fact that Daniel is a remarkable young man with some wisdom and discernment beyond his years. So much so that he saw through their propaganda. He, he could see what was going on. No matter how good the food might be, Daniel was unwilling to compromise his convictions. He chose purity over pleasure. And it seems as if Daniel, at least in my view, is the only one willing to take that first step. There's no indication that his opinion was shared by even any of his close friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Which is why I think there's more going on here than just strict adherence to dietary laws. I think there's a deeper meaning that maybe even Daniel had in mind here. Maybe Daniel knew that the Babylonians were not only feeding their bodies, they were feeding their minds. And if they found success through all this Babylonian training, then who gets the credit? Babylonians, right? The king. They are the product of a superior system. That's the natural outcome. But what if they weren't exactly following the system? What if instead they were following convictions of faith? In that case, who gets the glory? The object of their faith, God, right? I think Daniel's decision may have just saved his three friends. I think what Daniel does here is save them from the captivity of the influences around them because apparently there were lots of these young men who were brought into service and it seems as if everybody else fell in line except for Daniel and his three friends. See, Daniel's choosing a different path and he's bringing his friends along with him and the tactic is very subtle and I want you to notice this. He didn't go on a hunger strike. He didn't create a big scene or try to start a big movement. His goal was to set an example. And so he humbly asked for permission. And when it was at least initially rejected, he found a compromise. He said, look, here's the deal. Give us vegetables and water for 10 days. And if we are somehow different in comparison to the peers in our group, then we'll change. you do whatever you want to do. In other words, start feeding us the king's food at that point. That was the deal. But instead, as we see of this passage, instead of growing thin and weak, they actually go fat and strong more than the peers around them. Now think about that. They're eating vegetables and drinking water. Does that make sense to anybody in the room? Not at all. Not at all. Unless, unless God is in control. Had Daniel not taken a stand, I think his friends may have fallen in line like apparently everyone else did. And by falling in line, they would have most certainly left their faith like apparently everyone else did. But instead, their faith was strengthened. Look at how it continues in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Hint, very important. Then at the end of the days which the king had special, specified for 
presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his entire realm. And Daniel continued into the first year of Cyrus the king. See, by looking to God, Daniel and his friends knew that their wisdom and intelligence did not come from them. It came from God. So instead of relying on an idol or some mystical force that they were being presented with as they were trained to do, they relied on faith. They experienced God's protection and His provision, and they gave God the credit. They didn't become prideful when they were stronger and smarter than everyone else around them. They were the top of the class, but they knew only because of the grace of God. And this grace was filled with a purchase purpose much bigger than them. So here's a question I think we need to ask ourselves continually as we go through the book of Daniel, and it's really simple. Will you be a Daniel? Will you be a Daniel? Despite all the influences that surround us, will you stand firm in your faith? And let me make an important clarification here. I'm not asking if you would be willing to mirror Daniel's actions because the fact of the manner is Daniel does some things and is put into situations that you and I will never face. I don't know. It could happen, but being thrown into a lion's den is not something that we normally see in our culture today, right? So I'm not asking you to, to mirror necessarily the decisions that Daniel made. What I'm asking you is will you follow Daniel's example of faith? That you can do, regardless of the circumstance you find yourself in. Because remember, it's not a study about the life of Daniel. This is a story about God and his work in Daniel's life. A God who was at work in Daniel's world just as he's working in our world today. And that same God is still at work in you. So will you be a Daniel? Like Daniel, we live in a world that is at odds with our faith. So what do we do? That's the question, right? What do we do? Do we start a rebellion? Do we voice our opinions and our protests on social media, expecting that to change? Do we leverage some political influence to change our culture? Let me ask you this. Is it our goal to make our culture Christian? Or should we be learning how to be a faithful Christian in the midst of a hostile culture? If we look at Daniel's example, I believe it's the latter. So let me close with three lessons that I believe we see in the life of Daniel in these, this first chapter. The first is this, a silent resolve. A silent resolve. Daniel knew the right thing to do, and he quietly and humbly chose to do the right thing. He didn't make a big scene. He didn't try to start a big movement by, by rallying the troops. Daniel really wasn't trying to do big things for God. Okay, don't miss that. He wasn't trying to do big things for God. He was taking small, 
humble steps of faith, knowing it is God who does big things. There's a big difference there. And it wasn't a one-man show. Daniel took his silent resolve, and he made it into a shared commitment. He brought others along with him who might have otherwise very likely been swept away. He leveraged his faith to strengthen the faith of those around him. He said, hey, let's do this together. It's not easy for any of us, right? So let's do this together. And then finally, Daniel was driven by a steady hope. Getting fat on vegetables does not make sense unless God is in control. God didn't even tell Daniel to do that. That was something Daniel thought of, probably inspired by God. But nonetheless, he came up with that knowing that it would honor God. And if he would do something that would honor God, that God would use it in a way that would bring him glory. Daniel knew that God had the power to rescue, and so he placed his trust in him. And so should we. May we also have a silent resolve. May we have a shared commitment. May we live with a certain and unshakable hope. I love the way that Paul closes or begins his letter to the Galatians. So let me close with this verse. Galatians chapter 1 verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the relevance of your word. Isn't it amazing? How we can look at something that took place over 2,000 years ago and find direct and important relevance to our lives right here and now. Help us to see that, Lord. Bridge that gap in our hearts and in our minds. And help us see that this is not a story about Daniel. This is a story about God's people in whatever age they may live. Because the same God at work in the life of Daniel is at work in our lives today. In much of the same ways. Help us see the truths that apply to our lives and help us to live accordingly. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. Good news. Psalm 62.2. He alone is our rock and our salvation, our stronghold. And in him, we will not be greatly shaken. So as we go through the story of Daniel's life, just let me remind you again, this is not a story about Daniel. This is a story about a powerful God at work in Daniel's life who's also at work in yours. And so, understand, don't, I would even go so far as that, don't be impressed with Daniel. He's just like you are. Everything he has was given to him by God. Be impressed with God, who is the source of all that Daniel possesses. And let's set our hearts and minds on that. So, Jeff, I think you want to introduce some folks.